Hello and welcome to the Decorum Talking Newspaper for the week ending Saturday the 8th of July 2023. This is Chris and your other readers are Kathy, Jeremy and Pam. This week our editor is Eleanor, all our members of Team One. Most of our news items are taken from the Hemel Hempstead, Berkhampstead and Tring Gazette and Express newspaper. All telephone numbers are on the local code of 01442, unless stated otherwise. This week's headlines. Dragons return. Schools upgraded sports pitch unveiled. Hemel countryside must be protected. These and other stories follow. Here is the news. Hello, this is Cathy. Decorum's Den is returning, offering businesses a chance to win a grant from the local authority. Decorum Borough Council's version of the long-running television series offers organisations the chance to claim £1,000. Now in its 10th year, more than £90,000 has been awarded via the scheme, helping to create additional jobs in the borough. Decorum's Den is aimed at individuals and businesses who have less than 10 employees and under £500,000 turnover, have a great business idea and are keen to expand their business in Decorum. Applications are now open until Friday, September 1st, 2023. Shortlisted applicants will be invited to put their ideas before a panel of judges led by Hemel Hempstead's MP Sir Mike Penning. The MP said, Decorum's Den is one of the highlights of my year. It is fascinating to meet new entrepreneurs and learn about their fledgling businesses. This year is the 10th anniversary and I am very proud that it has been such a great success and enables larger corporations to support small local businesses. Many times I have visited a local business that benefited from Decorum's Den when they first started up. This is just one of several innovative initiatives that Decorum Borough Council offers to support local businesses to help them grow and thrive. Decorum Borough Council leader, Councillor Ron Tyndall said, Decorum's Den is an excellent opportunity for anyone with a great business idea to get on the first step of the business ladder and bring their concept into reality. Funding can be a real barrier to business growth or for new startups to gain momentum. So a cash injection can be the helping hand to unlocking future potential. This year, the event is sponsored by Sopra, Steria, Epson, Abode Bed and Beaches Group. Winners will also receive free coaching from Action Coach and Hemel Hempstead Business Ambassadors membership. Last year, eight businesses received funding from the council. Business ideas that were supported including solar panel advisors, cake makers and a children's theatre company. Hello, this is Jeremy. A Hemel Hempstead school has unveiled a groundbreaking non-infill sports pitch that will transform games. With a commitment to providing the highest quality facilities for its students, Longdean School has invested in state-of-the-art upgrades to enhance the sports experience and promote a healthy and active lifestyle for its students. Working in partnership with contractors Velocity Sports, Not Sport, managed the project which involved extending the existing sports pitch and outfitting it with a brand new shock pad and a non-infill artificial grass surface. 
The sports pitch extension integrates Trocellan's 5008XC cut shock pad and Greenfield's SlideMax Pro NF top carpet. The shock pad ensures a safe playing environment by reducing the risk of injuries caused by impacts during sports activities. The selection of Greenfield SlideMax Pro, a non-infill artificial grass surface, brings additional benefits. Unlike traditional infill systems, this surface eliminates the need for infill materials such as rubber or sand, resulting in a cleaner and more environmentally friendly sports pitch. It also provides a consistent playing surface, ensuring high performance and playability across various sports. The school administration and the Board of Governors say they are thrilled about these enhancements, adding that they firmly believe that the upgraded sports pitch will significantly contribute to the overall educational experience of the students. They also say the new pitch will be a considerable improvement to the wider community. Youth and girls football have increased as a direct result of the installation. Underrepresented groups will also be encouraged. Surplus income from the facility will contribute to the improvement of their grass pitches and help sustain other school facilities such as the recent investment in a post-16 cafe building. We are delighted to invest in the extension and modernization of our sports pitch, said Andrew Wheeler, premises and safety manager of Longdean School. The new facility will initiate or reinvigorate the desire of some of our students to participate in sport. It also raises staff morale and enhances their ability to deliver not just football to a higher standard, but all sports with increased positivity often associated with facilities. Without hesitation, I highly recommend Not Sports for your synthetic surface project. The management of the tender was slick, while the overall installation process was monitored meticulously. Inquiries and variations were dealt with promptly and efficiently at all process stages. Our artificial grass pitch project was delivered to a high standard, within budget, on time and without issue. A premises manager's dream. Some councillors doubt enough work has been done to secure the countryside's future near St Albans and Hemel Hempstead. A district-wide look at where to build more than 11,800 homes in the future is underway. St Albans City and District Council's Planning, Policy and Climate Committee met on Monday, June 26th, where elected members had the chance to quiz planners about their draft housing blueprint. Among the sites where there were question marks was a Hemel Hempstead bolt-on more than twice the size of Whipsnade Zoo. Sandwiched between the M1 and Hemel's eastern edge, the 504.2 hectare site is set for 4,750 new homes by 2041, up to 5,500 in total, and an 8,000 job Envirotech industrial area. Redbourne Independent Councillor David Mitchell feared the proposal would result in the loss of some farmland, which, according to Natural England, is the second best out of five grades. He said, obviously we're putting the climate emergency front and centre, 
but we don't make any reference to the good quality agricultural land that exists in and around the district. Surely we should be protecting any agricultural land which is grade three or above that is very good for farming. Surely we should be looking for less good agricultural land. Councillor Mitchell added, if we do want to maximise our wheat production, that's the sort of land we should be keeping as a country, never mind as a district. That's going to be a big issue in the near future for the country, being self-sufficient in food production. Planning officers confirmed agriculture was a factor in the balance, but added this needs to be weighed up against other demands such as the need for homes. A selection of sites are proposed for Harpenden, including plans for around 762 homes in northeast Harpenden and around 293 in northwest Harpenden. One site, which Harpenden Conservative Councillor Theresa Heritage has concerns about is in Cross Lane, where 131 homes could go between Bamville Wood and the railway. Councillor Heritage said roads should not be built over the nearby Harpenden Common. She told the local democracy reporting service, access to it is so difficult already. I don't understand how a report could say it is possible to access it and build 131 houses. We don't have to move away from ordinary planning rules. Councillor Heritage added, Harpenden Common, along with similar land in Bricketwood, already has protections. They're already sites of special scientific interest, she said. They are historical. The common is part of the character of Harpenden. I do want to see sensible site selection. For me, the green belt is precious. But I have to be realistic. We do need new homes. St Peter's Liberal Democrat councillor Jackie Taylor urged planners to look at how they can bring homes advertised for short-term lets, such as Airbnb, into the residential housing supply to reduce pressures elsewhere. I know the government is doing some work on this, councillor Taylor said. Moving on, earlier in 2023, the government announced plans to crack down on short-term lets importing antisocial behaviour. Councillor Taylor added, I don't think as a council we know the extent of Airbnb in the district. She claimed there is one road in St Albans where there are 60 properties being used for short-term lets. There are 60 properties already there that could be in use if legislation was tightened up. Is there anything we as a council can do to bring forward better legislation on this? Planning leaders acknowledged the issue and said there is scope to raise concerns with the government in Westminster, but warned that short-term lets might be also be room rents rather than whole homes. Some sites in the plan refer to intensification. These include proposals for around 92 homes at Sainsbury's in Everard Close St Albans and around 19 at Waitrose in Harpenden. A leading planner said there was potential to turn large supermarket sheds into London-style mixed-use developments with parking, housing and retail. Councillor Chris White, LD Clarence, chaired the meeting. In a statement before the meeting, he said that draft sites were selected considering issues such as substantiability, the need to protect the Greenbelt selecting sites that would cause the least harm to it 
and planning authority best practice. He said getting a new local plan adopted will allow us to control where houses and businesses are built and very importantly, where they are not built. The plan making process is set to continue with the next committee meeting due on Monday, July the 10th. A public consultation is also due to launch in July. Now this week in history, July the 6th, 1971, jazz legend Louis Armstrong died of a heart attack. He once said, musicians don't retire, they stop when there's no more music in them. On this day last year, the Duke of Cambridge took part in the Outsourcing Inc. charity polo match, raising funds and awareness for 10 charities supported by the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. July 1967, Using Sir Francis Drake's sword, the Queen knighted Francis Chichester, who had sailed solo round the world in Gypsy Moth 4. July the 8th, 1918, national saving stamps went on sale in Britain. On this day last year, the UK was hotter than Los Angeles, at temperatures pushed towards 30 C. July the 9th, 1955, Bill Haley and his Comets went to number one in the US pop charts with Rock Around the Clock. July the 10th, 1958, the first parking meters in Britain were installed in London's Mayfair. On this day last year, Novak Djokovic was crowned Wimbledon champion for a seventh time following his victory against Nick Kyrgios. July the 11th, 1975, China's terracotta army was uncovered near the ancient capital of Xi'an. More than 6,000 warriors were made around 206 BC to guard the tomb of the first emperor. On this day last year, Birmingham Airport was the worst in the UK for flight delays in 2021, an investigation found. More than 100,000 trees have been planted in Hertfordshire as part of the Queen's Green Canopy Initiative. Community groups, businesses and schools are among those who took up the challenge to plant a tree to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee in 2022. And on Tuesday last week, it was revealed that 111,000 179 newly planted trees have been registered in Hertfordshire as part of the scheme. At a meeting of the County Council's Environment Cabinet panel, Council Officer Lynn Sini said the project had been a really good way of getting people engaged. And she said the number of trees planted in Hertfordshire far exceeded Council targets. Initially, the Queen's Green Canopy was started to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee, said Ms. Zini, who is the County Council's Director of Environmental Sustainability. And then, very sadly, it moved on to commemorate the life of Her Majesty. It was great to see how much enthusiasm there was for this initiative. At the meeting, councillors were told 17,341 of the trees had been planted by more than 1,100 volunteers to create a wood in the east of Panchinger Park in Hartford. And they heard a 650-tree, 100-acre wood had been created as part of Aldenham Country Park's Winnie the Pooh Trail. There were, they were told, planting schemes in each of the 10 district and borough areas, 
with trees planted by a further 42 town or parish councils and 12 community groups. In addition, they heard, more than 1,500 trees were planted at schools and other county council sites. Proposed cuts of more than £1 million in youth services provided by Harts County Council will put children's lives at risk, it is claimed. The cuts may also mean closing some of the 22 youth service buildings and cutting frontline staff, say members of Harts Lib Dems. The council announced plans to consult on cutting more than £1 million from services for young people at a meeting of the council's children's and education panels. The changes, which would reduce spending on youth services across the county, are part of a plan to save £3.3 million from services designed to provide early help to families and children in Hertfordshire. County Councillor Mark Watkin, Lib Dem Education spokesperson, said, The county's youth services have already been cut to the bone. We were told that these cuts could only be achieved by closing some of the 22 youth service buildings and cutting frontline staff. This will mean a big reduction in the projects run for young people year round, cuts in school holiday schemes and an increase in the number of disadvantaged young people failing to find employment or education. The council already only provides youth services to those young people who need them most, but this will reduce these still further. It is a great shame that the Conservatives decided to press ahead with the consultation on these changes. County Councillor Steve Jarvis, Lib Dem leader and Children's Services spokesperson added, Everybody who works in children's services recognises that the sort of help that the services for young people provide can keep young people's lives on track. The cuts here and those that are being considered for the family centres which support younger children will mean more children at risk and more that have to be looked after by the council. Apart from the impact on children's lives, this will cost the council more money. Just four more children in the most expensive care could wipe out the savings from the cuts in services for young people. A spokesperson for Harts County Council said, Like all councils, we face significant financial challenges, which means we have to make some difficult decisions in order to protect and deliver services for the long term. We are investing an extra £19 million in children's services this year, including £5.2 million to support children in our care and £10 million for home-to-school transport for children with special educational needs. Continuing to invest in these areas of significant demand and cost pressure has meant that we also need to create savings across our services and redesign our early help and youth services. On 10th of July, the County Council's Cabinet will consider whether to begin a consultation on proposals to redesign these services. The proposed changes are intended to provide more targeted youth services, including for those at risk of not being in education, training or work, and to change how we deliver our family help and young people's services so that they work more closely with community settings such as schools and family hubs. No decisions have been made and we recognise the concern that potential changes like this can create, 
which is why we will be holding a three-month consultation on the proposed changes before making any decisions or implementing any changes. Hertfordshire County Council has drawn up plans to relocate staff from its landmark County Hall headquarters in Hertford in a move that could cut costs by £3 million a year. As part of the relocation plan, staff could start moving over to the Council's Stevenage office campus from September, and only a small part of County Hall would remain in use as a democratic and civic hub. According to the proposals, council staff are now working at County Hall less often as part of a post-pandemic move to hybrid working. And the proposals say that as well as cutting costs and being more sustainable, the move to Stevenage would create a thriving and magnetic workplace. The proposals will be considered by a meeting of the council's resources and performance cabinet panel on Thursday, the July the 6th. And a final decision is expected to be taken by a meeting of the Council's Cabinet on July the 10th. If agreed, officers will then look at future options for the remainder of the County Hall site and work on a marketing strategy. Commenting on the proposals, a spokesman for the County Council said, Our evidence-based proposal to move most Council staff based at County Hall in Hartford to fill our existing office space in Stevenage will enable us to maintain excellent council services in the most efficient and cost-effective way. We are committed to retaining the historic frontage of County Hall and the council chamber, which will remain the democratic centre of Hertfordshire in the long term. Discussions with our staff, stakeholders and unions have taken place and will continue ahead of the proposal being considered by the Council's Cabinet. With greater hybrid working, it is reported that on a typical day, just 18% of County Hall is occupied. Meanwhile, in Stevenage, just over half the space at Council's Farnham House, 53%, is typically being used. According to the report, it would cost an estimated £48 million to redesign County Hall to meet the needs of new ways of working. In making the case for the move to Stevenage, the record points to the relative location of the two buildings, fewer than 15 miles apart. And it says that while both are underutilised, they are being operated as if at full capacity. In 2020, the County Council dropped one of its two office buildings in Apsley, reportedly to have led to an annual saving of £1.8 million. In 2021, Farnham House and Robertson House in Stevenage were refurbished, and that refurbishment, says the report, has created an office environment fit for the future that supports new ways of working. According to the proposals, staff could start to move out of County Hall in September 2023, in a process that would continue into 2025. Marketing for future uses of County Hall would be expected to start in the summer of 2023. But no business case for County Hall is expected to be drawn up until next year, and that would be subject to future Cabinet approval. 
Councillor Nigel Bell has highlighted the genuine pressure teaching staff are under after councillors were presented with Ofsted data from the past year. According to the latest data, 91.5% of schools in the county were judged to be good or outstanding by Ofsted in the year up to March 31st. At a meeting of the County Council's Education, Libraries and Lifelong Learning Cabinet Panel, councillors were told that that was above the national average of 88.5%. And Ben Fuller from Hearts for Learning noted that the overall proportion of schools in the county ranking good or better was very strong. At the meeting, leader of the Labour Group, Councillor Nigel Bell, pointed to the work of teachers in the wake of the COVID pandemic. And in noting the, country's, the county's Ofsted performance, he said that it was important to recognise the work put in by teachers and schools. However, he said they should also remember the genuine pressure that hard-working teaching staff were under. He pointed to the stress of producing the magic few words from an Ofsted inspection. And he highlighted the case of head teacher Ruth Perry, who died ahead of the release of an Ofsted report that downgraded her school. He said, that needs to go on record that we do need to understand the pressure so many of our schools and our staff and our head teachers are under. It's good to see that so many schools are getting the top grades, but always understanding that pressure. I would like to pay tribute to obviously the schools and all the work they have done. In response, Mr Fuller said that at Hearts for Learning, they would rather say that their focus was on making sure schools are providing excellent education for their young people and not all about Ofsted. Nonetheless, there is some element of the work that our advisors do, which is around making sure that those head teachers and senior leaders are properly prepared to have those conversations, he said. As you say, it is a stressful situation, but being well prepared and having the right evidence and knowing how to handle those conversations is an important part of helping schools to get the outcomes that they deserve. Liberal Democrat councillor Mark Watkin made particular reference to the success of the county's maintained schools. According to the data, 94.8% of maintained schools in the county were judged to be good or outstanding compared to 84.2% of non-maintained schools. And he said it worried him that three of failing primary schools were to be offered up to the non-maintained sector, as if, he suggested, it was a miracle cure. One of Hemel Hempster's longest established and highly regarded nurseries is in new ownership. Moore End Farm Day Nursery which was established nearly 30 years ago, has been sold to Kindred Nurseries. The nursery, based in London Road, Boxmoor, was launched by husband and wife team Cheryl and Mac McMichael for children aged up from three months to five years. At the time, Cheryl was running a thriving child-minding business from the family home before Mac constructed a purpose-built nursery on their farmland, surrounded by animals. With that, More End Farm Day Nursery was born. A spokesman for the buyers said, with their retirement sale, they carefully considered each buyer and chose Kindred, who have a similar ethos to theirs. It was vital that the staff and children were not disrupted 
and there would be an orderly and smooth handover. Kindred's chief executive, Ruth Pimental, said, We are thrilled that More End Farm has joined our growing Kindred family. It further extends our footprint in the east of England, and we know it will be a great match for the rest of our group. Cheryl and Mac's passion was evident from the start. They were keen to know that the nursery would continue to be looked after and further developed. We are looking forward to working closely with the More End Farm team over the coming months as we warmly welcome them into our family. In the heart of Hertfordshire, a remarkable initiative called the Repair Shed is making a profound impact on the lives of the over 50s, combating loneliness and fostering a sense of purpose. More than just a place for fixing and building, the Repair Shed provides a space for meaningful connections, shared experiences and the restoration of vital skills. At the Repair Shed, individuals come together to repair and construct items using recycled materials, all while dedicating a significant portion of their time to supporting a host charity. With three sheds currently running, the demand is evident as there is a waiting list of predominantly isolated men seeking companionship and purpose. As a team leader and retiree, volunteering at the repair shed has given me a renewed sense of purpose, allowing me to apply the skills I honed throughout my engineering career. The charity holds a special place in my heart, as the shed I volunteer at is located within a special needs school, said John Briffitt of Redbourne Shed. The repair shed is not just about repairs, it's about rebuilding lives, fostering connections and empowering communities. Together we can transform this new shed into a beacon of hope, bridging generational gaps and creating a brighter future for all. If you are interested in volunteering in any capacity at any of the repair sheds, contact the Volunteer Centre today. You can call us on 247-209 or email. You can also pop in to see us in the Roundhouse, the round building outside Boots in Hemeltown Centre. We are open Monday to Friday, 10 till 3. A new book is set for release, looking at the Game of Thrones-like history of the lost King's Langley Palace. Palace Lives by Michael Long can be pre-ordered now and is set for an official release on the 30th of September. It covers the drama, intrigue and key historic individual characters who ventured to the palace. Palace Lives has been described as a real live version of Game of Thrones, the hugely popular television drama based on George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series. Michael is an experienced historian who has taught and studied the Plantagenet history of Kings Langley. This period between the 13th and 15th century is the focus of the 180-page feature focusing on how the Hertfordshire Fortress was once the favoured palace of the royal family. Kings Langley Royal Palace and the Dominican Friary and Church once stood atop Langley Hill. Now, after hundreds of years of decay, just ruins exist in the vicinity. Ruined flint walls and fragments of stonework can be seen at the site. 
Michael says in the book's foreword, For me, writing once again about the Plantagenet kings, queens and courtiers from the 13th and 14th centuries was like revisiting old friends and familiar events. With two exceptions, each chapter in Palace Lives relates to the life of a Plantagenet king or prince who spent time in, resided at or had an association with Langley during their lifetime. One of the motivations behind the books was to focus on rulers who rarely make an appearance in English schools curriculum. For some historic characters from the paperback department, the palace represents a home for others. It is the location of their birth or death. Michael added, above all, this is a story of people, many of whom regarded the Royal Palace of Langley as a special place. These are all significant and fascinating characters who, by their actions, shaped the very threads of our past. It is a story that deserves to be more widely known. Now we come to the information slot, and this is followed by the obituaries, what's on, and any more news. Plastic Free July begins on Saturday. In the UK, it is estimated that 5 million tonnes of plastic is used every year. In decorum, plastic items make up 14% of our grey bins. Around 67% of this is packaging, much of which could have been recycled or avoided entirely. Explore the decorum zero waste map on our website to find local refill and plastic-free shops to help you cut down on your plastic use. You can avoid those plastics by refilling washing up liquid bottles, refilling cereal and rice containers, refilling washing detergent containers, and using a shampoo bar and bars of soap. Here are eight alternatives to peat compost to help to protect the environment. One. Look at labels. Buy compost that is labelled peat-free. Two, compost schemes. Deposit green waste in exchange for compost. Three, responsible replacement. Use other materials such as wool, bark and green waste. Four, make your own. Mix green matter like grass and brown matter like cardboard. Five, nutritious feeds. Use tea bags, comfrey and nettle tea which are all good fertilizers. Six, vegetable water. Give your plants a feed with leftover vegetable cooking water. Seven, water wise. Try bottom watering so it gets to the roots. Eight, mulch your plants. This will help lock in moisture and add nutrients to the soil. The obituaries on the family announcement page this week are John Edward's sister, aged 90 years, Paul Belgrove Dotteridge, aged 84, and Sheila Wood, known as Mags, aged 92. May they all rest in peace. What's on? Music. Harpenden Live off Lower Luton Road, Harpenden, July the 15th, midday to 10.30pm. The new family-friendly festival for Hertfordshire is dedicated to featuring music produced both by emerging artists and those who have already achieved success. 
as well as music, the event will feature a family play area, plus food and drink from local breweries and regional food businesses, with cuisine from England, Spain, India and elsewhere. Acts include India Arkin, an indie singer-songwriter based in Newcastle, and Barbara, whose music encompasses 70s US AM radio, a dash of English music hall, Broadway musicals, power pop, luscious strings and golden harmonies. Visit harpenden-live.co.uk to book. St Albans International Organ Festival. The St Albans International Organ Festival is on at St Albans Cathedral 3rd to 15th of July with an array of recitals and concerts featuring Judith Weir, Peter Van Dyke, Todd Wilson and Jean-Baptiste Robin along with tenor James Gilchrist and the St Albans Bark Choir. Full programme and tickets. Organfestival.com The Tringe 2023. The Tringe Comedy Festival is back at the Court Theatre in Tring, running 2nd to 22nd of July, with a star studded lineup of stand up comedians including Rachel Paris, Clive Anderson, Milton Jones, Rod Gilbert, and Marcus Bridstock. For event details and tickets, go to tringefestival.co.uk. Ashlyn's school and grounds are being transformed into a magical fairy light strewn festival playground for the Ashlyn's Festival, which returns for family friendly fun in July. Run by the Ashlyn's School Association, with profits going directly back to the school, it promises to be even bigger and better than before, with comedians fresh from the professional circuit, live music, an activity filled fun zone a fully licensed bar, a sizzling array of local food and the ever-popular glow-up tent. The event usually attracts around 2,500 visitors. The festival gets off to a spicy start on Friday 14th of July with a comedy and curry night for adults only, led by Paul Sinha, the TV's chaser, the cinnamon. Curries come from Berkhamsted's Fat Buddha restaurant, uh, music takes centre stage on Saturday the 15th of July with live performances all day and into the night. There will be a range of games and activities on offer for youngsters and the young at heart in the new fun zone and festival goers will be encouraged to get their glitter on in the glow up tent. This joyful family event is not only an opportunity for the community to get together and have fun, but it also helps us fund some really important school resources, from transportation for sporting fixtures to specialist equipment for children with special educational needs. It also allows us to support our local charity partners who will be running activities for their own important causes, said ASA Chair Gary Illingworth. He added, the festival committee will also be working closely with Transition Town Berkhamsted to ensure the event will be as green as possible, with around 2,000 to 3,000 visitors expected to come through Ashlyn's gates. They will be supporting us on the day as litter pickers and advising us in the run-up to the event on sustainability issues such as waste and recycling. 
Tickets available from ashlinsfestival.co.uk. Scientists say that octopuses' brains show the same kinds of activity during sleep as our own brains, which suggests that they could also dream and have nightmares. The human brain cycles through four stages when we sleep, but it's during the part called rapid eye movement, REM, that the brain's activity increases and we start dreaming. Now, a report in Nature describes how researchers studied nine octopuses while the animals were asleep and awake. They found that the creatures jerk around in their sleep and also switch between different skin colors and patterns. Octopuses can adopt, adapt their skin so that they're camouflaged against predators. The report says this is very similar to human sleep. There are several theories about why animals need to sleep, but we still don't understand it very well. So this new research could help to unlock some of the mysteries of what sleep is for. A Hemel Hempstead business park treated its staff to a special Star Wars themed event. On Thursday, June the 22nd, Breakspear Park held an event dedicated to the famous sci-fi franchise. Event organisers managed to hire a full-scale replica X-Wing fighter jet, which people could check out and get inside for photo opportunities. Alongside the display were fancy dress participants, cloaked out as a Jedi, R2-D2, Darth Vader and a Stormtrooper. Running alongside Star Wars Day was an internal competition which workers could enter via Breakspear Park's ParkLife app. Joseph Curran from the Orifarm Group won the competition and will receive a Lego Star Wars set as his prize. At Breakspear Park, we firmly believe that a well-balanced work environment is vital for the productivity and happiness of our employees, said Dina Mystery, marketing manager at Breakspear Park. She added, our Star Wars-themed event was not only a tremendous amount of fun, but also encouraged our workforce to take a break from their desks, engage with their colleagues, and enjoy the vibrant atmosphere of our business park. As we witness more individuals returning to the office, it remains crucial for us to provide opportunities that foster a healthy work-life balance, making Breakspear Park the ultimate place to work. Breakspear Park hopes to forge stronger connections among employees, enhance overall job satisfaction, and create a positive workplace culture by hosting events which encourage collaboration and creativity. A pupil of Hobbs Hill Wood Primary School has won a signed copy of the book Darwin's Super Pooping Worm Spectacular for her winning poster design on composting. The prize also included a wormery for the school garden. The book tells the true story of how Charles Darwin discovered that the humble earthworm is the most important species on the planet. Sophie, aged nine, was one of more than 70 entrants to design a poster to present the benefits of composting and how to compost. The competition organised by Decorum Borough Council, was open to all primary schools and attracted a high level of entries. However, it was Sophie's artwork which caught the eye of Hemel Hempstead-based author Polly Owen, who wrote the newly published book and was part of the judging panel. 
Councillor Robin Brummham, the councillor's the council's portfolio holder for neighbourhood operations said, composting is a way of working in harmony with a natural ecosystem. This will preserve nutrients and convert waste back into clean fertiliser. This will help to grow flowers or the food we will be eating next year. It's wonderful that children of decorum have been learning about these processes and describing it in their artwork. Hobbs Hillwood Primary School will receive the wormery for their school garden and a signed copy of the book for their library, both kindly donated by Polly. All competition runners-up will receive a Worm Spectacular badge, bookmark and sticker. To find out more about home composting and discounted compost bins, www.decorum.gov.uk slash compost. It was a breath of fresh tennis air when Andy Murray burst onto the scene, making his debut at Wimbledon in 2005 at the age of 18. Sir Andrew Barron Murray, OBE, is a British professional tennis player. He was ranked world number one in singles by the Association of Tennis Professionals for 41 weeks and finished as the year-end number one in 2016. Murray has won three Grand Slam singles titles, two at Wimbledon, 2013 ending a year 77-year wait for a homegrown winner, defeating Novak Djokovic, and again in 2016, and one at the US Open in 2012, and has reached 11 major finals. Murray was ranked in the top 10 for all but one month from July 2008 through to October 2017 and was no lower than world number four in eight of the nine year-end rankings during that span. Murray has won 46 ATP singles titles, including 14 Masters 1000 events. As he prepares for this year's Wimbledon tournament, he said he had no plans for retirement, despite public opinion to the contrary. The 36-year-old said he would retire from tennis eventually, but it would not be for a while. His history at, at Wimbledon. Murray made his debut in 2005 at the age of 18, losing to David Nalbandian in the third round. In 2006, he was knocked out by Cypriot Marcos Bagdatis. In 2008, he returned to Wimbledon, having missed the previous year with a wrist injury. He eventually succumbed to Rafa Nadal. After battling through to the semi-final in 2009, Murray was beaten by Roddick in four sets. In 2010, he suffered semi-final sorrow again, as he was beaten by a strong Nadal. In 2011, he again suffered semi-final heartache at the hands of Nadal. In 2012, he reached his first Wimbledon final, but was beaten by the six-time champion, the imperious Roger Federer. He couldn't believe it in 2013, as after so many years of heartache, he won his first Wimbledon title. 2014 was a disappointing year, as Murray lost in the quarter-final to Grigor Dimitrov. In 2015, he reached the semi-finals, where he was given a Swiss masterclass by Federer. 
In 2016, Murray beat Milos Raonic to pick up his second Wimbledon title. Hip problems hampered Murray in 2017 and 2018. On his comeback in 2019 after hip surgery, he competed in the men's and mixed doubles, and in the latter he reached a creditable fourth round. Since then, it has been mixed fortunes for Murray on the professional tennis circuit. The Murray tennis train rolls on, at least for another year. But where will he finish at Wimbledon in 2023? Cricket. Hemel Hempstead Town's Cricket Club's first team had another win as they took on St Albans. Batting first, Hemel made it to 193 for 8 from their allowed 60 overs, with Brett Penny leading from the top with 46, followed by 31 from Matt Parkins at number 7, 23 from Jack Dodson and a lengthy 22 from Tom Elborn. St Albans only managed 163 for nine in reply. Darren James took out their top three batters in the first 20 overs to leave them at 53 for three. Then as their innings progressed, Matt Parkin stepped in with a four for 24 from 11 overs to leave them at 149 for eight with six overs to go. Although the returning James managed to snaffle their number nine caught behind, there was too little time to get the last wicket. Hemel are in sixth place in the championship at the halfway point. Hemel fell to defeat against informed Stratford seconds, having made it to 226 all out. Skipper Brad Finch hitting 50 and brothers Ed and Will Langley 31 and 30 respectively. Stortford openers Haytel Patel, 68, and John Gaffney, 61, put on 114 for their first wicket by the halfway stage of 24 overs, and the Hemel wicket-takers proved to be Dil Khan, 1 for 45, and Stan Hayden, 4 for 52. Hemel rest at fifth place in the Division 3A at the halfway stage of the season. Hemel 3 fell to defeat at home to Radbourne 3, having been bowled out for 88, only taking four wickets in reply, with Ted Butler getting two of them. The fifths were beaten by Kings Langley 3rds, after scoring 158 for 9. Jim Langley with 27, then the host knocked off the target with ease, despite Jonah Lewis taking two wickets. A total of 23 Berkhamsted a swimming club athletes competed at the Westminster Lodge St Albans end of season meet and again came away with a sack of medals and personal best times. Dewey Fordyce, Darcy Cadder and Tamsin Moren all came away with gold medals. Fordyce picked up two in the 10 years 200 metre breast and 50 metre breast as well as bronze in the 100 metre individual medley slicing over three seconds from his previous best. He swam the 50-metre back and 100-metre fly, the latter securing a bronze medal. Kada, also in the 10 years age category, swam eight races and expanded her experience across a broader range of events, picking up her gold in the 400-metre free, which she swam for the first time clocking six minutes, 59.85 seconds. 
In addition, she picked up bronze in the 100 metre fly. Moren surprised herself in the open age 50 metre breast with a new PB of 35 to 43 to take the gold and also walked off with gold in the 200 metre individual medley and silver in the 100 metre individual medley. Several others took on the longer races, including Poppy Carberry, who took the 13 years bronze. Valeria Antonini claimed silver in the 200 metre breast, while nine-year-old George Gosling took silver in the 50 metre fly. Rose Llewellyn gained yet another medal with bronze in the 50 metre fly, and Rafe Lawson secured silver and bronze in the 50 metre breast and 100 metres individual medley, respectively. Club captain Darshan McGregor also took home a silver from the 50-metre fly and bronze in the 200-metre free, while 17-year-old Emily Thomas gained her first ever medal for the club in the 50-metre free. A number of PB performances were also recorded, and those who got them but didn't claim medals included Rose Williamson, who set PBs in all four of her races, Atkinson McCallum went 10.17 faster in his 100 metre free and Sam Charles secured two PBs while Amelia Faccini saw a 22 second improvement in the 200 metre free as well as two other PBs. Lucy Franklin continued to improve with three PBs while brother Will sliced off 24 seconds off his best in the 100 metre back and got another PB in the 100 metre individual medley. Alex Howard shot down his best in all four of his races. Henry Mumford dropped 15 seconds on his 200 metre breast and a further eight seconds in his 100 metre breast, 1 minute 41.62 seconds, while Jacob Saunders was nine seconds faster in his 50 metre breast. Other swimmers competing were Maddie Hesse, Jack Moss, and Lily Aston. Blaise Tapp writes on changing the breakfast habits of a lifetime. In a rather half-hearted attempt to beat the middle-aged bulge, I've recently taken the not-so-radical step of having a proper breakfast in the week. I think it is fair to say that I resemble a man who has had more than his fair share of Weetabix on a daily basis, not to mention bacon, eggs, black pudding and a fried slice. Despite my increasing need for elasticated trousers, the fact of the matter is that until very recently, brekkie consisted of a slice or two of toast with own brand butter spread and maybe a smearing of Marmite. And of course the obligatory, obligatory goldfish bowl-sized mug of coffee. I don't know how true it is, but friends and loved ones have long told me that skipping what people who still refer to 10 peas as two bob as the most important meal of the day is borderline dangerous and is probably the reason why I resemble Mr Greedy side on. It turns out that I was not on my own, as nearly nine in 10 Brits say that they skip breakfast and make up for it later in the morning with classics such as a packet of cheese and onion crisps or a Mars bar. One news website 
helpfully produced a league table of the 15 most popular mid-morning snacks, which were consumed by those who regularly shun cornflakes or a smoked salmon and cream cheese bagel first thing. That was a fun game of calorie-busting bingo, as I was able to tick off all of them, including scotch eggs, pork pies, biscuits and even popcorn, as snacks I had consumed by 10am at some point. There were some that weren't featured, including leftover takeaway or a bowl of super noodles. There are many reasons why people get into the habit of skipping one of the three key meals of the day, and I suspect that cost might be something that has become an increasing factor in this trend. In my case, it was a pattern that developed in my late 20s when I used to wake up with the lark so I could drive for an hour to make the 7.30am news conference, something that was never best attempted on a full stomach. It was during this period that I developed a penchant for swapping the products of Walker's for Kellogg's and I wasn't fussy about the type of flavour. I scoffed Watsits, Monster Munch, and even those bacon-flavoured snacks that resembled scabs while the Today programme was still on. Once kids came along, it was an even harder habit to kick because, like millions of other homes across the land, the first hours of the day are a relentless carnage that have always made me feel like I am in the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan. You know, the one on the beach, but without the cold-blooded massacre of young soldiers, naturally. Regular squabbles over who is going to scrape out the last of the honey from the jar or demands for homemade pancakes or chocolate spread are enough to put anyone off their porridge oats. Then there's the fact that there's never enough time in the mornings, especially when you have to participate in the regular game of Hunt the Missing Shoe. Spoiler alert, it's usually under the sofa. Despite all of this, I have made the time to eat something substantial before I clean my teeth and have started to have a bowl of posh muesli, not the budget stuff which resembles something that you would find in a bowl in a hutch and even a banana. This new groove means that I don't tend to begin my daily cupboard search until much later in the morning than I used to. While I am yet to see any dramatic changes in my body shape, I think I might resist any future temptation to slip back into bad habits. The UK is one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. It is in our hands to change this. Our gardens provide a space for wildlife larger than all our national nature reserves put together. So let's be determined to use that space, large or small, to help and protect our wildlife our biodiversity, in which every creature has its own contribution to make. In 2020, hedgehogs were first placed on the red list as vulnerable to extinction. Hedgehogs are a major ally of gardeners, a very important part of our ecosystem, as they amble through the vegetables at night when other beasties are out and about, relishing in hoovering up slugs, snails, caterpillars and big crunchy beetles. Yum yum. Research shows a decline of 30% in the last 10 years alone. There are now thought to be only around 1 million hedgehogs left in the UK. So, hedgehogs are strangers to most because they are nocturnal. In the day they sleep, in nests in safe secluded spots. At night they roam, up to two miles, needing to access other gardens to forage. Do leave a small gap in the fencing for them. 
13 centimetres square, or dig a small tunnel under the fence. Hedgehogs can live to about six years, harmless to and nervous of humans, rolling into a ball of prickles if afraid. They have poor vision, but excellent hearing and sense of smell. November to March, they mostly hibernate. In March, they emerge, having lost a third of their body weight. This is the time that extra food and a saucer of water will really help them. Cat or dog food, chicken or turkey, not bread and milk. Being lactose intolerant, milk will give them severely upset stomachs. In April, they make nests of grass and leaves, sited under sheds or thick hedges. Take care to never disturb them, as the nests may be abandoned. The females rear the four to six hoglets by themselves, at first foraging and returning to feed the babies, then taking the hoglets out to learn how to find food themselves. And babies will still take their mother's milk up to eight weeks. By August, hoglets are independent, living alone, but some babies struggle to reach a good enough weight to survive hibernation. Leave extra food out for them. So why are numbers declining? Loss of habitat to new build. Loss of food sources, hedges, leaf piles, use of pesticides, and again, our responsibility, use of strimmers and garden forks. A few minutes vigilance before strimming long grass, turning a compost heap, or lighting a bonfire may be the difference between life and a very tragic death to a snoozing hedgehog. Hedgehogs will not run at the sound of our mowers or strimmers. They assume their prickles will protect them. Sadly not. Finally, slug pellets. Please don't. A hedgehog's favourite food is slugs, so be generous. Leave them for the hedgehogs. With more food come more hedgehogs, and that rating on the endangered red list, maybe we can work to change that. Let's try. For emergency advice, call Tiggywinkle Wildlife Hospital on 01844 292 292. We're coming to the end of this week's news. Sunrise and sunset times for this weekend are 4.53 a.m., and 9.20 p.m. For those with access to the internet, our news is uploaded to our website soon after recording each week on Thursday evening. This can be found by visiting dtnhemel.org.uk. If you wish to listen on Alexa, say, Alexa, open the talking newspaper skill. Alexa will ask you which broadcast you want to listen to. When prompted, reply, Play the Decorum Talking Newspaper. This part can be tricky. If Alexa offers the wrong station, just say no and then try again. For those who are listening to the news via a memory stick, after the music there is the amenities section that gives details of various groups and contact details of organisations. Please remove your memory stick carefully from the player and return it to us in the pouch provided. Seal it up firmly, turn the label over and post it back to us using any Royal Mail post box. No stamp is required. Thank you for listening. Until next time, it's goodbye from all your readers, the editor and Joe, your technician for this week. Goodbye. <laughs>